we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories were told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording in Mianjin. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there may be some swearing in today's podcast. If you don't like swearing or usually listen with children in the car, you have been warned. You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants and providers about all things NDIS. Hello and welcome to today's episode. Today with me, I have Julian. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. A little bit nervous, but very excited. <laughs> I, I hope the nerves settle down as we get going. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, so our first question is always, where did you grow up? Uh, so I grew up mostly in Canberra. I was born in Townsville. Um, and then when I was six, family moved down to Canberra. I was there until I graduated from university and then uh, decided I needed somewhere much warmer that had a beach. Um, and so I moved up to the Gold Coast, which was very, very exciting. And uh, that's where I've been for the last um, nine years. Ah, oh, nice. I like that. Yeah, Canberra's cold. <laughs> <laughs> Canberra's very cold. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, you end up knowing everyone down there. So yeah. it, was, it was good to, to get away. Um, chose the Gold Coast because I did a placement there and just loved it. So thought, yeah. why not? Fabulous. So you're a physio. Yes. Um, so tell me, how did you get into the disability sector? Uh, so mine's probably, um, I've been in the disability sector for maybe two to three years now. Um, I started my physio journey as a musculoskeletal physio in a clinic. Um, so that's where you would if you hurt your back or someone and you want to go see a physio, that's the type of physio I was to start with. Um, I moved from one clinic to the next clinic um, and the second clinic had an inbuilt hydrotherapy pool. Um, and so that was my kind of introduction to working with people with disability. Um, it wasn't so much on the NDIS, but it was um, people with a TBI or ABI, um, working with them within the hydrotherapy setting, which was really fantastic. Um, after that clinic, I left the physio sector for a couple of years working in um, work health and safety in with a, a big crane company, um, very different. And then I came back to work in a bigger organisation that works within the NDIS and aged care and community um, allied health. Um, and then earlier this year, I decided to take the, the bold move to go out on my own and become an independent physio. And um, yeah, so from about March this year has been when I've um, started back to you physio. Awesome. Awesome. And now, now you're hooked on disability? Now I'm very much hooked. I've um, had a really enjoyable time meeting other providers in the sector and then working with 
um, different individuals has been really rewarding and um, and really exciting. Yeah. And you're mobile, aren't you, predominantly? Yes. Yeah, mobile predominantly. I do have relationships with um, a few providers that um, have offered to, to let me use their rooms and things like that if certain people would rather me not come to their house and we go to a different setting. And that's been really good to be able to go to a, a different place and be able to use different rooms if necessary. Awesome. So tell me about how physio sparks your interest, particularly I think in mental health. Yeah, so I, I do work across uh, all kinds of ranges um, in neurological and Parkinson's and MS, but where I got talking to a few people at um, some networking events and yourself included was I was just happened to be asked to help work with uh, um, some people with schizophrenia. And then I was doing a lot more research into people with schizophrenia and, and their physical needs. And while I was doing that research, it just were, kind of shone a light on the the physical side that's usually missed for this mental health. Um, and it was just really interesting when I was talking to different people at these networking events, no one really had a full understanding, including myself, when I before I started doing the research around it. Um, so that's kind of how I not got hooked on that, but that's how I came. De- developed a bit of a strength and yes. a niche for, do- yeah. for being really good at that. Absolutely. Which I, I think is, is also a specialisation. Yeah. That's the way. <laughs> Um, so developing that specialization, um, I think is, is really awesome. Um, what is some of the research telling us about schizophrenia and exercise? Um, so what I first discovered when I was doing uh, some background research on it was that the negative physical symptoms that came from someone with schizophrenia and the increased in physical rate of illnesses that they, those um, people diagnosed with schizophrenia would have. So heart disease or strokes or diabetes. They were also found to have an um, pass away 15 to 20 years before someone with um, someone from the general population. But then going further into it and seeing where a physio or an exercise physiologist or a personal trainer could help with the exercise side of things, you actually started finding the, that you could help with those types of diseases and illnesses where if you exercise and you're, you're healthier, you're less likely to have diabetes, you're less likely to have a stroke. But you also found that you improved their attention, their processing speed, their memory and their executive function as well. So you actually helped the mental side as well as the physical side. So it kind of went across both, which was really interesting where you this could actually be a therapy for them to help them for both sides. That sounds awesome. And so when you, what sorts of exercises are we talking about? Like, do we have to push massive weights or (laughs) um, like, I know nothing about exercise either, but I'm just running, like, is it running around? What, 
what sorts of things are we talking about? Uh, so we're looking at, so you're looking at more um, and it really depends on the person. Sure, so of course. if you, if you um, have someone, and especially if we're talking about um, schizophrenia in particular at the moment, someone might not be that mobile. They might not have that much balance. And so they might not be able to do much as someone who is more mobile and more functional, but you're trying to make sure that the heart rate gets up they're, you know, you're breathing hard. So if um, you or I were to go out for a, a fast walk or um, a jog or something like that, you're looking at finding that kind of exercise base or that intensity for an individual based on their base level capabilities. Um, so a couple of people I work with, one person we um, we'll do, they, they struggle with their balance. So we'll focus on that first and then we'll do a big walk around a, an oval to, to get the exercise component going. But it depends on, on their physical level and if they're carrying anything else, any pains or injuries as well, working around that. Yeah, yeah. What other research have you found about this? Uh, so it's mostly around, so what they found was the medications for schizophrenia, they can really help the biochemical side of things, um, but they're relatively poor alleviating um, cognitive deficits. Um, and that's where the exercise can come in. So what they've found in research is there's hippocampal deficits. What the hippocampus is, is a part of your brain that helps play a role in your memory and then that's particularly vulnerable in schizophrenia. The exercise therapy can actually improve the blood flow to that area and therefore you're improving your memory, you're improving other kind of executive type functions or to do with everyday life, making decisions, that kind of thing. That's all really interesting. Um, so we've talked about schizophrenia. What about for other mental illnesses? Yeah. So with, I think there's a general knowledge in the world today that um, exercise is definitely beneficial for your mental health. And there's definitely some research around depression, anxiety, and general mental health. So with depression, it's not so much that if you're um, clinically depressed and you're in a depressive phase, it's not going to click the fingers and you come out of it. But um, they have found that exercise therapy can help prevent the next reoccurrence from happening. And then with anxiety, there's beneficial, that, like to, to manage anxiety levels and things like that, there has been some research around exercise therapy and exercise in general being able to help people manage through levels of stress and anxiety and things like that as well. I know even for myself, I am definitely a routine exerciser. And if I'm having a stressful week or anything like that, that it even helps me on those minor levels as well. So that's an interesting thought. How, how many times a week do you exercise? Uh, so personally, I will do five to six days uh, in the morning for like a, I like to do gym, going to the gym or um, I have a home gym. So going to my garage is my 
way of exercising. And then on the weekend, I'll like to do, um, go for a surf. So it's a, um, more of a, um, I also go with some friends. So it's a social type of exercise session where it's less about doing an hour straight of exercise, but also socializing and having fun as well. So for me personally, I, yeah, five to six times a week, but I think talking, giving advice to other people of, of looking after their mental health through exercise, it shouldn't be that you've got to get up and you've got to do a 30 minute run or a 30 minute gym session each day or whatever, however many times a week, it's about finding what suits you. So it could even be you and your partner or you and a friend going for a walk in the afternoon and and going for a 30 minute walk or something like that, that might be the right thing for you. Just finding what works for each person individually. Yeah, great. So we've talked about physio helping people with um, different mental illnesses, which is probably outside of what we generally assume a physio kind of does. Um, Does it have to be a physio that does that? Uh, No, definitely not. So, yeah, so for me, the mental health side obviously only takes up a very small portion of what I do because physio and um, mental health is definitely not the most closely linked thing. But if if there is someone listening who is looking after someone that has schizophrenia or something, it could be an exercise physiologist. It could be like a personal trainer that can be involved as well. My only suggestion would be if this person has some other comorbidities, if they've got some pain or injuries or anything else that might be interacting with um, them, that getting an exercise physiologist or a physio on board to start with to at least design a plan that could be carried out by themselves or carried out by support staff would be the recommendation there. Yeah, great. And what is the main difference between a physio and an exercise physiologist? Um, I do get that question a lot. There's very, very similar in terms of the theory they learn. Um, It's probably more their the treatment techniques might be slightly different. So an exercise physiologist would look at more, would first go to more exercise-based therapies where a physio might use exercise-based therapies but might also be more hands-on doing either manual therapy or, for example, I see someone with MS and we're working on their flexibility and things. So I've got my hands on and we're doing some different things like that instead of just the exercise-based therapy. Ah, excellent. I, that's a very good explanation. Well done. I hope so. <laughs> One of the things I've noticed um, in my work is sometimes when you go into a physio's clinic, you might only do the physio work when you're there. And even if they teach you exercises, it's hard to translate that back to home. And I even had a scenario where I had a client who lived in a really small house and just didn't have the space or even a backyard. Like there was just nowhere that even, you know, stretching out really could occur. And 
but they hadn't let their physio know that actually the the exercises they'd been given just wasn't possible in their space. And I said, okay, how about we do one session where the physio comes out to your house because they were nervous about having the physio in their house. And then the physio can then see your area and go, okay, and then modify the exercises. Um, So I think it's really important that, you know, our clients keep um, feeding back to the physio kind of what's going on for them. Yeah, I think that's really important. I think that's really important for not just the high level exercises. I think that's really important as well for maybe someone suffering from Parkinson's or someone suffering from um, peripheral neuropathy where they might actually have a balance or a falls risk because to give someone a balance exercise or something like that to improve their balance, you've, you've got to kind of give them an exercise that challenges their balance but in a safe manner. So when you're not there, you need to know that where they're doing it is a safe environment. So um, if you go to the house and you could set them up so they're in a corner or something like that and they have benches around them so if they slightly stumble or fall, you know that they're going to be safe and they're not going to end up falling over and hurting themselves and going to hospital or something like that. So even yeah, from the area point of view of someone being able to do those exercises but then taking that into other areas of physiotherapy where it might be a safety risk as well is very important. Another scenario I often have and I try to promote with a lot of my clients is you can only see the physio or exercise physiologist once a week or once a fortnight or even just once a month sometimes. You just don't always get the funding that you want And so what I try to encourage is that physio to teach the support workers so the times that they can't be with the physio, they are able to do those stretches safely because they've got the support worker with them. So do you, when you're teaching support workers how to help the person do their exercises, um, do you sometimes try and get the whole group of support workers that are surrounding that person or do you prefer to do it like one at a time what what's your strategy so I would prefer doing to be honest as many as I can get at once so um, if I could get everyone that would be seeing this person through the week that would be brilliant quite often I will only be able to talk to the support worker that's on the day I'm there and then I'm relying on my stick figures or um, word of mouth or um, other written things to help progress that over. But if I could get more support workers there, it would be better because you can, whatever the exercise is, um, and I've had this with a client just this week where I got to show the support worker exactly what I was doing. And then as a physio, you're trained to look at certain body parts and movements and we're we're trying to promote Um, back to normal mobility and so my eyes are focusing on certain things and I can then tell the support worker in this particular exercise here's two points that I want you to be focusing on 
maybe they're doing a certain movement and I want them their knee to be in a certain position. So being able to give that information directly to a support worker is brilliant. So having more interaction with the team is the better. Just unfortunately, you can't always get all the support workers at the one time. No, I, I do understand that. So um, that's great. For for my youngest child, one thing we tried to do is I, I asked the physio's permission, but I just filmed it on my phone so that we could then watch it to do it later because I find the stick figures too too difficult to follow yeah. myself and um so I you know I think that's another avenue people can use to to make sure that everyone understands what needs to be done absolutely I think that's a brilliant idea using especially if you're looking for something that the person themselves can't see. Maybe you're looking something at behind them in a particular exercise that you can show everyone else this is what you're looking at or what you're looking for and then you, everyone can just see it because, yeah, written word can be taken any different way. Yeah. And then um, even that's really good because I might be showing you an exercise to look at for one of your children but you might not remember the two things I've told you next time you go do it. But if I'm describing that in a video, then you can go back and you can hear the voice and you go, okay, they're the two things I'm looking at. Yeah, and that's exactly why I did it (laughs) because I knew when I got home I will have forgotten, not because I'm not paying attention, but almost sometimes because I'm almost paying too much attention because I'm so focused on like do it right, do it right, do it right. Yeah. And you almost forget the other bits that people have said. Yeah. So So the big thing with that kind of thing is and that's why the I think the really good physios as well or exercise physiologists or OTs, they'll they'll bring it back to maybe one or two points. You might be teaching someone. So again, I'll go back to the example of um, a, a client, a participant that I'm seeing with, with MS and we're relearning to stand to sit and there is maybe six or seven or eight things that he's not doing correctly right now, but I'm choosing two. And that's what he's focusing on. That's what the support work is focused on. I don't, you don't need to care about it all because if you're trying to focus on eight things, you're not going to do any of them right. So it's just the two important ones. And then once you've nailed those, you can add extras. I think that's such an awesome way of doing it because they're still going to see you at some point, right? And so if, you know, say it's during the week, they're practicing their sit to stand, sit to stand, sit to stand, and then they get back to you. You can focus on all eight or nine different things, but during the week if they're practicing those two, then by the time they get back to you, they've nailed those two. You don't have to focus quite so hard on those two and then it's the next two. Yeah, (laughs) and a lot of with, especially if you're looking at stroke or where you're trying to retrain the brain and retrain movements, you're, the person's focusing so hard on all the things they need to fix. So if you can learn something, 
and it starts to become a little bit more automatic, then you can actually take that focus away on something else. If you're trying to focus on all eight at one time, you're not getting enough attention on any point. So you want to try and, and it might not even be a week. It might be, you might, I might come back and see someone every week or every fortnight, but it might not be for a month or two months that we stop focusing on those two and we move on to the next one because it started to become automatic. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about hydrotherapy and how that works? So hydro, I love hydrotherapy. I think it's very underutilized. So hydrotherapy is in a pool that's usually 32 to 33 degrees. Most through, only know because we're based here in southeast Queensland, but most public pools now have smaller indoor swimming pool that is this, that correct temperature, has a ramp, and so it's fantastic for hydrotherapy for people of all ability. But what happens is when you walk into the warm water, you become uh, lighter. So if you're standing in the water and the water's about up to your hip, you're gauging that there's about 50% less weight on your feet. If the water's up to your chest, you're, there's a, only about 20 to 30% Um, of weight onto the feet and so you can do a lot more movement with people that can't stand as much but also within any type of movement that you do within the water you're pushing against us resistance so you're strengthening with any movement that you're doing in the pool as well yeah that sounds logical to (laughs) me that's that's great so our Final question of the podcast is, in your ideal world, what would the future of the NDIS look like? So I've, I've kind of got two answers to this question. Awesome. Tell me. Um, the first one is there's a lot of discussion around the NDIS and the amount of money and funding it's taking up. And I, don't, I do not know how this could happen, but if there could be less funding required for kind of the reports and the evidence needed for the therapies. So I know OT reports are are quite huge and even physio ones that aren't as big as, as OT reports, but they can take a number of hours to complete. And that's funding that we're taking away from therapy that would actually be improving someone and capacity building them rather than just giving information back to the NDIS. So I don't know how to do it because they've obviously got this in place for a reason, um, throwing it out there with kind of no care, no responsibility. But if we could, if there could be a way to reduce the amount of spending that we have to do on someone's package on the admin side versus what we could actually deliver therapy-wise would be amazing. Absolutely. So I love this because I I completely agree. It's it's all about having, you have to have so much evidence. And if you could just, you know, write like a page or two about this is what the person has done. This is how they're improved. This is why we need more of it done. Just give, give us the funding for it and don't require a ridiculously long report. Just just so you you have the evidence, evidence 
for like the it's it's frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly is. And it just like especially for um any kind of therapy, whether it's um physio, exercise physiology, speech, yeah. OT, you're usually someone to get to get improve, they need to be doing something three to four times a week. So if you could go back weekly and then update and check everything's going well and things like that, you can then provide more guidance instead of going back monthly and maybe for a whole month they've been doing something incorrectly or in a month's time they might have got, in two weeks' time they might have got bored and they stopped doing some things and they've dropped off. But just being able to give some more to the therapy side of things because that's what we're, the whole aim is to capacity build someone and so to take that away for just report writing is yes. frustrating sometimes. It also frustrates me because the funding, the, what they pay in funding doesn't go into a black hole. It pays people like you and me and then we pay taxes and we spend our money that puts money back into the economy. <laughs> and so I get really frustrated with people talking about like this funding black hole because I'm like, no, that's that's not what it is at all because the NDIS pays predominantly for services for humans and humans buy things and pay taxes and so it's not a funding black hole. It's so frustrating to get people <laughs> to understand this. Yeah, that's very true. And I do love that point. <laughs> So what was your second one? Oh, the second one was just um, a, a more collaborative approach. So I think a lot of the time each per, each person caring for someone were working in silos a little bit too much of the time and just having a, a better collaborative approach, just picking up a phone, having a five-minute phone conversation about from an OT to a physio, oh, this is what I'm thinking of doing, this is what I'm thinking of doing, how can I help you meet your goal in my sessions and how can you help me meet your goals in your sessions? Because um, I might be working on one thing, but while I'm working that, an OT might be working on organisation or scheduling. And so I can make the person do a little bit of that within my session to organise and schedule or something like that just by doing my normal therapy with a little twist to it and then they're getting twice or three times as much benefit. And that comes back to C.1 because if you had more time and more funding, people would be more willing to collaborate. People at the moment, I think people are resistant to doing anything that looks like they're doing something for free. And I can understand this to a point. Um, I think sometimes people take it too far. But anyway, the other thing too I think is really important is those stakeholder meetings with all of those therapists together. And that, again, costs a whole lot of money because even if you keep them one or two hours, every single one of those people are charging $193.99 plus your support coordinator, plus your, you know, your support yeah. workers, you know, it, it's it, – then that session is a huge amount of money. So it would be real. I would love to see there be 
money for those stakeholder meetings put in. Yeah. Um, but certainly, like, in my practice, the way I do it is definitely to try and get everyone talking to everyone else yeah. um, as much as possible. I mean, it, it depends a little bit on their support coordination funding as well um, because I don't always have the time to, to say, hey, this is this, this is this. Yeah. Um, but I try to and definitely a few of my high-end needs people, I'm, I'm better at getting everyone to collaborate. I think that it would be good if it could be done more often with um, even some of my teenagers because I, I do think they don't get nearly as much funding and so I, I probably hasn't, haven't been as good at getting OTs and physios and, and everyone else to collaborate just based on not as much support coordination funding. So, um, But I don't think it's always down to the support coordinator. So where I've worked really well in the past and it, I don't know why, but it's when an independent is working with a, a participant with multiple independents, for some reason we talk more than if it's a company and I'm not sure why, but it just seems to happen that way. But you're, as a therapist, you're driving from session to session and after a session, for some reason, me and this OT, we would just, when we were needing to just have a quick catch up, it's just usually on your drive anyway, so you're not wasting any time. You're yeah. going, you're driving to somewhere else and just on the phone to have a quick chat of this is what I'm working on, what are you working on, how can I help you? And it's like a five-minute conversation. It doesn't need to be charged. And I think it could be more therapists to therapists as well just take that initiative. Yeah, Cool. I don't think it yet yeah, always has to be down to you, the support coordinators. You have a lot on your plate. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> for recognising that. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank it's you for having me. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. <laughs> so until next time, thank you. Thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.